This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Andrew R. Murphy about his biography about the 17th century English Quaker and founder of the American Colony of Pennsylvania, entitled William Penn, A Life. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to join us today. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'd be happy to. Um, probably most uh, relevant or germane to our conversation today is that I was born and raised outside of Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> very uh, familiar with uh, the iconic image of William Penn, um, everything from the uh, statue on top of Philadelphia City Hall to the image all over the place. Um, and uh, Penn was someone who uh, I had sort of a general familiarity with as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania. Um I went off and uh, did my undergraduate work at the University of North Carolina and then went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, studying political science. And I was particularly interested in the history of political ideas, um, more specifically the history of um, the idea of religious freedom uh, and and where it came from and how it emerged both in Europe and then uh, in America. So uh, William Penn played a, a a bit part in my doctoral dissertation, which was my first book uh, called Conscience and Community. Um, and from there, I had um, teaching positions at uh, Villanova, um, at the University of Chicago, at Valparaiso University in Indiana, and then since 2008 uh, at, uh, at Rutgers. Um, uh, I, I, am con- I continue to be interested in these sort of connections between religion and politics and the history of both of those things in America. I wrote a book called Prodigal Nation, which was about the rhetoric of moral decline and divine punishment. But I kept having this kind of interest in the back of my mind about Penn. Um, uh, he's a figure I referred to in, in another piece I wrote um, as someone who's everyone's heard of, um, but actually a lot of people don't know much about him. Um, and it struck me that he was sort of an underappreciated figure in the history of uh, political theory, which was my academic field. So I came back around to him um, because it struck me that what was one of the things that was really noteworthy about Penn was that um, he was uh, sort of um, uh, not only a political theorist, but also someone who tried to put political ideas into action. So I've been interested in sort of the interconnections between religion and politics and the history of our political ideas. And those are the kinds of things I teach and write about. And you've written about it in a previous book about William Penn that was more a study of his ideas. What led you to uh, undertake a you know, cradle-to-grave biography of the man? Well, it, that's a, that's a um, question I asked myself a few times <laughs> when I was in, in the middle of uh, microfilm and working through his papers. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, Penn is someone whose name is ubiquitous, um, and yet what I quickly came to realize that um, in – in the history of political theory and in the history of the development of religious freedom, um, uh, the big name that most scholars go to is is John Locke, who was a famous um, Enlightenment thinker, wrote the letter concerning toleration in 1690, and Locke was very influential on the American founders, and he gets a lot of press in the history of religious freedom. But it struck me that Penn was someone, not only did he have a, you know, a very famous name, um, but also he was someone who not only theorized about religious freedom and offered arguments and, and, and reasons about why it was a, a, a policy that ought to be pursued. But he also had the opportunity to attempt to actually create a society where that uh, value would be 
embodied in the institutions. Um, so it was a life that was not simply a, a life of political theory. It was a life that was deeply enmeshed in political practice, both in England and um, America. Um, and it struck me that at 2018, just the year that's just, that's just wrapped up, was the 300th anniversary of Penn's death. And so as I was working through these various projects um, earlier in the 2010s, 2010s, it struck me that this gave me a kind of uh, time frame to, to work within. Um, and I would say also um, a lot of the existing biographies struck me as less than satisfactory. Um, uh, a number of them were written in ways that sort of highlighted Penn's Quakerism, um, which was, of course, an important part of his identity, but it was one part among many. Um, his role as a founder of an American colony was one part of his identity, but it was one part among many. And so I really thought that the time was right for um, sort of a re-investigation of this life that always struck me as enormously complicated, filled with uh, unbelievable achievements, but also deep, deep disappointments. Um, and so I found myself again and again sort of coming back to this idea. Um, and then and now here we sit. That point you made about the biographies, I think is a very interesting one, because when I was uh, doing some background and preparation for our conversation, I uh, was looking at some of the previous biographies that had been written about him. And it was fascinating to see how, uh, say, 70 years ago or so, you, you have all these small biographies about him, the ones that are geared towards, say, middle school students, mm -hmm. you know, the typical biography, you know, you know, young, young boy makes good, you know, here's, <laughs> here, here's our, you know, capital F founding, capital F father, right. and so forth. And how then you, know, you still have biographies written about him up to the present day, but there doesn't seem to be as much about him as there was, say, two, three generations ago, when he seemed to be much more of a uh, touchstone of our nation's past. It, it, do you think that we've uh, maybe bypassed him in some ways in terms of how we like to reference him to our own past? Or did those books just simply do such a good job at the time that we didn't need anything for a while and now we do? I mean, it's just that, 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 yeah. that vacuum just is so interesting. It is interesting. I, I think one of the things that happened was that um, a, a major publishing project um, put on first by the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, um, uh, which uh, and, and, and a sort of scholarly team uh, in the mid 1970s, um, uh, Penn's papers were kind of gathered and cataloged and um, published on 14 reels of microfilm. Um, that was sort of in the mid uh, 1970s. Um, throughout the 1980s, uh, a team of of scholars um, sort of selected some of the what you might call the greatest hits from those 14 reels. And they were published by University of Pennsylvania Press in, in four print volumes, four big, thick print volumes, which you can still find today. Um, and so there's a certain um, uh, material, there's a certain amount of materials which are sort of newly accessible. They were all, they always existed, of course, but they were just not quite as uh, easy to get a hold of. Um, and so there's been, you know, a, a, um, a kind of new opportunity and since the late 80s um, and into the 90s um, to go back and sort of re-engage with him. Um, I do think, or at least I, I like to hope, that the 2018 anniversary uh, and its approach was something that sort of made, made the, the audience for this book that we're talking about today um, sort of a, a, a reality. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting about Penn, and I, I have sort of an unscientific uh, uh, quiz that I often ask friends and colleagues, I say to them, you know, if Penn became the proprietor of Pennsylvania when he was 37 years old, and he lived till he was 74. So he had 37 years, uh, more or less, in charge of this colony. Um, if you were to guess how much time he spent in England versus America, um, what would you guess? Um, and the answers are just really surprising um, because the, the right answer is four years out of 37. But a lot of people said to me, well, I thought he was born here or I thought he spent all of his time here. And so uh, to get back to something I said earlier, his his name is ubiquitous. His sort of his his figure, his his image is ubiquitous. Um, and and yet he was someone who during his own lifetime was absent um, and his relationship with his colonists was, you know, very stormy. Um, and so despite the fact that he is on the one hand, this very familiar figure, he's also quite mysterious, um, and, and remains unknown. 
And that to me is surprising after having read your book because you describe, I mean, you think, you know, in, in some ways you, we, we tend to sort of treat these, you know, figures of the, 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 of the past as being kind of these dull lives and so forth, especially <laughs> when you talk about sometimes people who have, you know, contributed to many ideas, we assume that it was kind of a, a, a rather stale life of the mind. And yet, as you uh, recount in your biography, he lived this very dramatic life. You, he's, he's in prison repeatedly, uh, sometimes for debt, as, as you open with the book, but also he's in prison for, because of his uh, beliefs and his practices. And, and he, he had these very uh, uh, dramatic set pieces in a couple of instances, which shows that the, the, this, it's, it's a life that is, you know, very much uh, full of activity and, 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 and I would argue, uh, still, uh, considerable relevance. It is. It's a, it's a remarkable, and that, that may be another uh, answer to your earlier question, which I didn't quite, as I, as I studied his thought and his, and the, the book, Liberty, Conscience, and Toleration, which I wrote a couple years ago, was a study of his political thought that published contributions to the political theory of his time. Um, but as I studied that life, um, it, it sort of dawned on me that this is not someone who's just an interesting thinker. This is someone who is all over the place in sort of the history of, of, of his, of his, of his nation, uh, in the history of Quakerism, which is sort of growing and, and having sort of growing pains at that time, um, in the history of transatlantic, uh, English and American relations and in, in colonialism and the English empire, he's got connections to Ireland. Um, and as I said a minute ago, there are, you know, sort of soaring, accomplishments and there are crushing disappointments um he is both a sort of a high-minded utopian visionary um he's also someone who is is quick to take offense and he holds grudges and he's bad with his money and so um i had not ever written a biography before i know some of your uh, guests you have on are, are sort of biographers by trade um it wasn't something i ever particularly planned on doing but i thought this is a fantastic story um, and to be able to sort of tell that story and hopefully reach a slightly broader audience than some of the more academic work I've done um, was really exciting to me. One of the things that made it so fascinating for me was the journey that he undertakes in his early years. And I was wondering if you could uh, start off our examination of his life by explaining uh, William Penn's uh, background, his origins, and his early years, because it, it was really that in in in, uh, in in contrast to that later life he has as a Quaker and a proprietor, that really I think for me started highlighting just how dramatic that life was. Yes, it's it's a fantastic and, and a fascinating um, story. His father, uh, Ad, later Admiral and later Sir William Penn, <clears throat> uh, was a naval a naval um, commander very successful one, um, fought on the parliamentary side in the English Civil War, which was during the 1640s, right when Penn uh, was, was, was born. Um, his mother was a Dutch who came to England via Ireland, uh, widowed. Uh, um, her first husband died in religious violence. And so um, both of these um, very interesting people that um, formed the backdrop for, for young William Penn it's worth pointing out that we know very, very little uh, about the details of the early years of his life. If you were to go and look at those 14 reels of microfilm I mentioned, um, the first document is uh, William Penn's baptismal certificate, October 1644. Um, second document is his entry into entry certificate into Oxford University. So there's this gigantic sort of um, uh, void in, in the primary source data. Now you go back and sort of backfill some of that and, you've, and you do learn um, uh, that there was, there was a bit more going on, of course. Um, his mother relocates him out of uh, London as a young boy, likely concerned for his health. Um, it was a, it's a notoriously dirty and disease-ridden city. So they move out to a little town called Chigwell, which is about 10 miles outside London. You can get there on the London Underground still uh, today, and you can still see the school that he attended. It's, in, it's been in continuous operation since 1629. Um, it's there that he has his first kind of religious vision, has a sense of himself as somehow in touch with God. Um, there's a sort of um, pastoral, bucolic um, setting there, which is then brought to a, a, a quick halt when his father gets thrown into the Tower of London by Oliver Cromwell. Um, uh, he goes from being Cromwell's favorite commander to being a pariah. Um, and when he finally is released from, from jail, 
uh, takes the family to uh, his lands in Ireland, uh, which he was granted by Cromwell. So he goes to this little town called McCroom, which is outside of Cork, Ireland, spends four years there. Um, we know, again, very little about anything that really happened there, except we do know that while he's there, probably at the age of 13 or 14, he has his first encounter with uh, Quakerism in the form of a traveling preacher uh, called Thomas Lowe. Uh, he spends four years in what must have been a really remote seeming, uh, I mean, going from the greater London area to just out 30 miles outside of Cork, Ireland in the 1650s is a, is a I suspect would be a pretty significant culture shock. Um, from there, he goes back to Oxford, which was the Christchurch uh, College, uh, Oxford, um, which is really a training ground for the English elite, which is what his father's got in mind for him. His father is risen through the ranks of the Navy um, and has aspirations that his son will follow in some sort of public uh, service career. Um, Oxford doesn't work out too well for him. He's, as we've been mentioning, um, a deeply religious, deeply pious young man. Um, He's kicked out of Oxford after just a couple of years. Um, His father sends him to Europe. There's a chapter in the book called Young Man on the Move, um, which really is about the first half of the 1660s, where he's he's in, uh, in, in France, spends a little bit of time at the Protestant Academy um, after being kicked out of college, comes back, decides he wants to study law, but then the, the Great Plague hits London, so they close down the law school. Um, uh, and it's really, he's really a bit at, at his wit's end, but you can see from the sort of story I've been telling you, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of emotional turmoil, um, and there's a lot of sort of um, uncertainty about where all this is going to lead this this young man. Yeah, that's one of the things I was thinking as I was reading those chapters that there, there, he's he, this is this restless searching that's taking place. He is looking for something. He doesn't quite seem to know what it is. But it, and, and the breadth of his journey is what makes it so impressive because you're talking about a person who, in the context of the mid 17th century, is traveling to Ireland, traveling to uh, Germany, mm-hmm. traveling to France. Uh, a person who is really, uh, you know, seems to be hunting for something to, to uh, that, that and he doesn't necessarily seem to know what it is. I think that's right. I think he, he is, um, by all accounts from his early years, uh, a deeply sensitive, um, spiritual, pious, religious um, uh, young man. Um, this, in sort of a negative direction, this this alienates him from the established Church of England, which is built on, um, as you might know, a lot of ceremony, um, intricate theology, rituals, and so on. And he's got this kind of spiritual yearning, um, but he hasn't really found uh, at the point that we're at in our conversation hasn't really found it. And what the what really cinches it for him, um, his father uh, sends him to Ireland to negotiate, I mean, they were, they were English. This is a part of the story that as, a, as an American of Irish heritage is something painful, uh, the story of England and Ireland, um, <laughs> but they are basically part of the colonizing elite. They are living on land that had been expropriated from the native Irish um, to which uh, they are then entitled um, rent payments. So Sir William, who is back now working with the uh, restored monarchy in the Navy, is preparing for the war with the Dutch. So he's too occupied. He can't attend to the Irish affairs himself. So he sends his son um, in 1666. So he'd be in his early 20s um, to go to Ireland um, to negotiate with the new, um, uh, with, the, with the tenants to uh, sort of settle the land claims, which are always a bit ambiguous and up in the air. Uh, and it's on that um it's on that trip that he encounters Thomas Lowe again, the same Quaker. It's a great story. The same Quaker preacher whom he heard uh, a decade earlier uh, in McCroom, he encounters him again. And it's at this point when he feels that all of this spiritual striving, um, searching, questioning, um, sort of ambivalence and alienation. Uh, when Lowe begins to speak, he says, I was deeply touched and he began to weep. And it's at that point that, um, he begins this, what will be a lifelong association with the Quakers, the Society of Friends. I was wondering if you could provide a bit of context here and explain who the Quakers were in the context of the 17th century and why Penn's 
association with them is so notable? Sure. Um, well, and when his father um, discovers that he's taken up with the Quakers, he's um, uh, deeply disappointed, mortified, um, horrified, angry, summons him home. But um, Quakers um, begin uh, uh, in the 1640s during this time period, as mentioning earlier, the civil wars with the breakdown of uh, the central government and sort of the, the upheavals uh, that come along with such uh, kinds of events. Um, uh, a number of religious groups arise that are sort of disaffected from the established church. And the Quakers begin uh, under the direction of an individual named George Fox, um, who recounts in his diary that uh, all the different ways in which he was alienated from uh, the religious options that were out there, and that finally uh, he he gathers around him, you know, groups of believers, and rather than engage in sort of intricate liturgical forms um, uh, with 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 clergy and hierarchies of various kinds, um, they come to the to the position that there is something of God in each one of us, and that the the appropriate way to worship is to sit in silence. And to wait until the spirit moves one to offer some sort of testimony um, uh, or speaking sort of a word um, from one's from one's soul. And so this is uh, deeply offensive to people who think that clergy have a sort of particularly privileged insight into theological things, um, that you need some sort of formal education, like a university degree uh, to be a to be a priest. Um, that there that there are some sort of religious uh, uh, doctrines. The Church of England at this time has 39 articles of its sort of theological foundation. Um, so it's an attempt to strip away all of that. Um, and it's 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 worth pointing out too that um, religion and politics in this time are are deeply um, uh, deeply connected. So when Penn becomes a Quaker, when when Penn uh, in this Cork meeting house in 16. 67 sometime, um, becomes a Quaker, he not only makes what we would say as a, a religious conversion, but he's making a major social and political statement uh, at the same time. He's removing himself um, from uh, the kind of career path that his father had foreseen for him, primarily because one of the, the key sort of principles of Quakerism at this time was that all human beings are equal and that therefore all the kinds of elaborate systems of showing deference um, to your quote unquote social superiors, like taking your hat off in the presence of uh, judges, for example, or the king, um, or speaking to them in some sort of elaborate way. Um, all of these things need to be stripped, as uh, stripped aside. And so Quakers refuse to, as I said, doff their hats to their superiors. They refuse to swear oaths, um, which is sort of the requirement if you want to hold public office or attend a university. Um, so it's a, it's a radical, radical group um, despised not only by, say, the Anglicans and other official you know, religion uh, adherents, but also by lots of other religious dissenters, too, who see them as dangerous radicals. And so this is a uh, one of the key parts of the book is the is the rift that opens up between Penn and his father. And it's real and it continues for a number of years that they do eventually have a, a reconciliation. There's also this fascinating tension that's at play as you describe it, because you what you describe about Quakers you know, is something that 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 you 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 know detail how, how Penn embraces it and, and seeks to live it. And yet at the same time a lot of what you describe as, as in terms of who he is as a Quaker and his achievements are because he doesn't, he, he's not so, like someone you might think of today who say renounces the family fortune and, and, and divests himself from it <laughs> and wears, you know, sackcloth and goes off and lives in, in, in a monastery. Right. He, he, he remains very much of that 17th century English world. And that right. is so important to so many of his achievements uh, in, 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 in his uh, prominence. Right, exactly, and and he it was not uncontroversial. He was he was a controversial figure within uh, the Quaker movement because he came from a very distinctive class background. He was in some ways an ideal convert for them. Um, he was uh, he quickly became um, one of their most famous uh, spokespersons, 
writing um, defenses of them. He was able to publish. He had money. He could get things published. Um, he was, by all accounts, sort of an articulate, uh, charismatic preacher. Um, but he wasn't your average sort of your, your average demographic uh, of what you might expect of a Quaker at this point. And in fact, he was still. Um, his father's oldest son, and therefore the heir apparent. His father threatened him uh, with uh, being thrown from the will, um, but didn't actually uh, follow through on that threat. So when his father dies in late 1670, Penn then becomes the uh, owner of uh, uh, tens of thousands of acres in Ireland. Um, He also uh, inherits uh, a debt that his father um, was owed. His father had had loaned money to to the king, uh, for the supplies of for supplying the navy, and it's that debt uh, ten years later that he parlays as sort of leverage uh, to get his uh, land in America. He tells the king, "Well, you owe my father this money, but we can forget that debt if you'll give me this land in America." So, so you're right. He is um, on the one hand shut out of um, social advancement of the sort that would lead to kind of his father's vision for him. So in other words, he, he can't take an oath, so he, he can't serve in parliament. Um, it's very difficult to um, to advance in, certainly not going to advance in the church, which is the other another way you would advance in that time. Um, and so because of a number of these uh, features of Quakerism, he's prevented from becoming the kind of public figure that his father had dreamed of. And that's really all his father can see at the beginning uh, when this is first happening. It's a very, very conflict-ridden several months and even even uh, uh, the next couple of years. Um, but that said, he then rises within this burgeoning movement, uh, Quakerism, which is undergoing a kind of um, movement toward respectability um, uh, and, and organization and, and so on. And he plays a key role in this uh, and then, again, becomes in some ways the kind of public figure that his father might have uh, dreamed of, um, though his father didn't live to see it. One of the interesting things about that is the fact that to, when, as I was reading your book was seeing how he never shirked controversy. And <laughs> I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about some of those early writings and the events that occasioned him. I, I was thinking particularly about that trial that he undergoes in London, oh, sure. which, which to me is one of my favorite parts of your book where, uh, you, you have this confrontation with the judge and it really is, I think the, the, uh, starkest delineation of that conflict between Quaker values and uh, the, the sort of the traditional uh, Anglican English social order and, and, and how it plays out in, in the context of a jury and, and how you're really seeing the, the, the effect of it, of it all you know, unfolding. Uh, yeah, the, the, the trial is spectacular. And the, the title of the, of the um, chapter in the book is Celebrity, because this is really the point at which he becomes uh, the kind of celebrity that, that he then remains for much of the rest of his life. Um, he's arrested in the, there's a, there's a law called the Conventicles Act, um, which shuts down all of the unauthorized um, religious meeting houses. Um, and because the Quaker meeting house is shut down, they end up meeting in the street outside of it. And so he and uh, William Mead, who's another Quaker there with him, are arrested um, uh, in August of 1670 for disturbing the peace and creating a, a riot. Um, and so the, uh, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. Um, uh, and it's, it's made even more so by the fact that Quakers, like many religious dissenters, are very savvy about their message and about getting their message out. And so uh, to fast forward just a minute and say at the end of the um, trial, um, an anonymously published transcript, and I'm putting quotes around transcript here, appears called The People's Ancient and Just Liberties Asserted. Um, now, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that this is an actual transcript. No one knows what happened, really. But it's a, it's a, it, it reads like a courtroom drama um, in which Penn and his fellow defendant Meade are in the, um, uh, uh, the role of heroic uh, heroically standing up for English liberties. Um, and the judge, who's also the mayor of London, uh, Starling is his name, um, is put in the in the worst possible light as a as a power hungry um, would be tyrant. Um, and so Penn uh, and Meade are put uh, on trial. Um, 
uh, there's sort of there are various skirmishes going on, but they get the they get the best lines. They get the lines that cite <laughs> Magna Carta. They get the lines that denounce the persecutory tendencies of the judge. And and finally, the jury is sent out. And at that point in the sort of the development of the jury, the jury was expected to do what the judge told them to. Um, it's not the the way we necessarily think of juries now. Um, and um, the jury came back in, and they tried to. They first said he was guilty of speaking in the street. And the judge points out correctly that speaking in the street is not a crime uh, and it's not even what he was accused of. So they send the jury back and this goes back and forth. Um, and the jury is then sequestered and, and imprisoned more or less overnight. Uh, Penn claims that they were denied, you know, food and the chamber pot. Um, uh, and finally, after six or seven times back and forth with the judge, bringing down verdicts that the judge then refuses to accept, uh, they pronounce him not guilty. And so this transcript that then comes out of it um, uh, uh, really sort of cements or, or introduces uh, Penn to a, a much broader audience, um, gives him this kind of uh, a persona, uh, sort of a public profile as heroic spokesperson for um, the jury system, the rights of Englishmen, and so on. Um, it's worth pointing out that even though he's acquitted by the jury, the judge sends him back to jail um, because he was, they, they fined him because they wouldn't take their hats off. So we're, we're back again to this sort of Quaker uh, subversion or transgressive sort of quality, which makes it even, what makes it even more sort of poignant is that while Penn is in prison, refusing to pay these fines that have been levied on him for not taking his hat off for the judge, his father is near death, just 10 miles away. Um, and Penn initially says, um, we can't allow anyone to pay these fines because it would be, you know, it, it's, it's a violation of my conscience. He does, in fact, allow someone to uh, pay his fine so that he can be with his father. And he is with his father um, at his father's death. And as he tells the story later, they have a you know, quite a quite the reconciliation um, just before his father's death. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, to be clear that it wasn't the, the trial that, that made Penn famous. I mean, he, in, in the, he'd already published uh, Truth Exalted. He'd already published uh, Sandy Foundation Shaken. He, he's, he's, he, uh, he's, he's an emerging figure yeah. even before then. And, and, he, and this is the point at which, you, going back to what you are talking about at the beginning of our conversation, this is when he, he's beginning to make this argument for religious toleration and, 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 mm -hmm. and freedom of thought. Right, right. And he's prominent in, in a number of ways. I mean, his name is the same as his father's, and his father is a very famous naval hero. So um, uh, the family is is well is sort of well known. And yes, he's been a Quaker for um, two or three years by the time the trial comes around, and he's had a certain um, he's had a certain uh, rising profile within the ranks of religious dissenters and so on. Um, what the what the trial does, I think, is really put a certain um, a, political, um, it, it sort of catapults him into a number of uh, sort of political conversations and debates that are going on, um, which really does make him a much more of a sort of a national figure. There's a, there's a coalition um, moving, not uh, growing, not simply around religious toleration, but also things like the rights of parliament, uh, the rights of juries as kind of representative institutions um, designed to frustrate uh, would-be arbitrary tyrants and so on. So it, and, and I think also the way in which the transcript sort of presents him um, really does take it maybe to the, to the next level in terms of um, him as a, as a, as a figure um, uh, who, who then sort of takes center stage in what becomes really a, a several decades long um, movement looking for religious and political liberty. So how does the founding of Pennsylvania fit within that? Is it mm -hmm. a, a point, is he basically balking from the pressure? Is it efforts to take uh, Quakers to a new stage? W what leads him to undertake this, this, uh, this uh, exercise and how is it received by the Quakers? 
Well, it's right. One of the things that Quakers are insistent about is that is that persecution and suffering is in some ways the mark of the true church. And so uh, the last thing that that any of them would ever suggest was would be that Pennsylvania was a place they should go to get away from suffering. In some ways, suffering was something they embraced. Um, in fact, the um, uh, the Quakers eventually publish and they, they start keeping what they call the Book of Sufferings, um, which is um, detailed lists of all the punishments that are meted out to them. So, so it's not the case that um, uh, it's simply trying to avoid punishment, but it is, as you as you pointed out. So if the trial happens in 1670, he gets the charter for Pennsylvania 1681. So we have a kind of decade, 1670s to talk about. Um, Penn is uh, at this point still rather young, um, uh, filled with energy, filled with sort of the zeal of the Quaker convert, um, and also someone who has access to resources. Um, and he is um, really relentless and tireless in his in his activities on behalf of Quakerism during that entire decade. Um, takes two trips to Germany and Holland, one in 1671, one in 1677. Uh, because of his father's connections with the king and the navy, he's able to um, uh, testify to parliament and gain access to the king in several occasions to make the case not simply for um, better treatment for Quakers, but better treatment for religious dissenters more generally. He publishes dozens and dozens of um, uh, polemical tracts attacking uh, various critics of the Quakers and so on. It's a it's a raucous um, public sort of atmosphere, um, and he is he is fully invested in this. Um, that said, um, it's also important to point out that that his efforts are largely unsuccessful. That 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 there is legislation remains in effect, um, penalizing Quakers and and all non-Anglicans, um, uh, criminalizing their meetings, um, fining them for refusal to attend. Uh, Anglican services and so on. And the way the political sort of situation is in England, that's not likely to change. Then there's a there's a, a, a major crisis known as the Popish Plot, um, rumors of uh, Catholic uh, plotting against the king, and that puts all sorts of religious dissenters um, under the microscope. Um, and so at, at by the time we reach the end of the 1670s, I think Penn's convinced or or reluctantly convinced that the the situation in England is is not going to um, improve any, um, and so I think this is a way to sort of think outside the box a bit about um, what might be possible. Might it be possible to serve God in some other way, um, and 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 so on. So um, in some ways, it's uh, a, a new direction that he comes to. Um, he ha- he had had some involvement in the. Uh, early founding of New Jersey um, uh, that originated in a kind of dispute between two Quakers, and he was one of the mediators brought in. So he was familiar with sort of the American situation, um, but that wasn't really a, a sort of a, a deeply personal founding for him uh, or event for him. So the Pennsylvania um, uh, founding charter comes about really um, after a, a decade in which he was um, both very prominent as a public figure, um, but also I think very frustrated at sort of the inability um, to convince Parliament or the King um, to take a new course on in terms of dealing with religious dissenters. One of the things you do in in the uh, in your description of the establishment of Pennsylvania is you highlight the very uh, interesting contrast between, on the one hand, you have Penn. Uh, as you were pointing out at the beginning of the podcast, who having an opportunity to take a lot of his theories and put them into practice and how this is offset by the reality, which I really thought was fascinating about when he gets there and and, he, <laughs> and he's engaged in the day-to-day operations of the colony and yeah. you have the theory, you have the ideal, and then you have the reality of, of even when you're breaking in all these Quakers who uh, you know, share a, lo- a lot of his religious beliefs about how, you know, on, on, a, on a different level, they're ultimately people. <laughs> right, well, right, exactly. And and you have to have some way of surveying the land and, and, and marking off where does one property end and where does one start? And you have to deal with things like, you know, clearing the trees and 
and and he found out when he got over here that you know there wasn't as much land as he thought and he he had envisioned Philadelphia being in one place and it turns out that, that wouldn't work and they had to move it to a different place um and so there's an awful he has a a surveyor by the name of Thomas Holm um who I just found myself uh, deeply sympathetic with because he comes over first uh, Holm is over here a few months before Penn is and and um people are people are showing up with their families and their and their garden hose and their plowing in- implements, and they're saying, "Okay, where's my land?" and and they can't keep up with the press of people, and so so there's that issue, and it really is um, the case that theorizing about religious dissent or popular liberty is one thing, but then actually getting here is is another. He uh, the, the related point is that he he really wanted um, control, and he got it. Um, uh, of what were, what were then called the lower counties, which is the current state of Delaware, um, because that allowed him a, a deep water access, um, which was important for the economic development. That said, these were sort of pre-existing settlements. These weren't all the Quakers coming over. These were Dutch and Finns and Swedes and Germans who had lived there for many years, uh, previously under Dutch control and then to English control. Um, and so that was a very different sort of cultural and and political set of communities. And there was a note of discord there um, from the very beginning. Now, when he gets over here and he does, uh, you know, he has this plan of government and he he sends out, you know, notices for the first elections and says, okay, you're going to send us, send us 10 representatives for this body. And I'm, the numbers aren't right, but I'm just paraphrasing and send us four, four for this body. Um, the people there often say to him, well, we don't have that many people uh, <laughs> who we think are qualified to serve in your government. And, and some of the ones we have, we don't think they're they're good. So the, one of the first sort of things that happens is that he, he sort of shrinks the size of the representative governmental bodies um, significantly. Um, he, had, he had envisioned like a 72-member council and a 200-plus member assembly. He ends up with an 18-member council and a, an assembly in the 50s. Um, so there's all sorts of very practical um, complications. Um, and I will say this, while he's there, those first two years, 1682 to four, while he's there on the ground, he's pretty good at sort of managing the conflict. If someone, um, you know, he'll, he'll offer a, a disgruntled settler who didn't get exactly what he wanted. Well, I'll, I can give you some land over here if you'll let me put someone else on this land. There's a lot of that kind of horse trading going on. Um, it's clearly, I suspect, not what he envisioned when he was first thinking about this. But it seems that um, while he's there, things are pretty well under control. It's when he leaves um, to go back to England, and 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 uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, that's when things, the, the the alienation, really does seem to set in between him and the settlers. That actually gets to something that I thought came out really well in his later chapters, which was how thin he had spread himself geographically because in effect, he needs to be in uh, Pennsylvania. He needs to be in London. He needs to be mm-hmm. in Ireland. He, he has all these interests all over the place. And, and, and as you described, he, his, his uh, you know, he, he's, he's part of the English elite. Uh, he, he, he's inherited all his property. And yet you're describing how oftentimes he is, you know, he, he's, he's desperate for cash. He makes these, very magnanimous gestures at the beginning of, of, of the, the colony's uh, establishment. And, and, but pretty soon he's having to, you know, basically come, you know, collecting his money because he, he for all of his property, for all of his uh, uh, prominence, he, he really is, you know, overcommitted in so many ways. Absolutely. He, um, uh, after he leaves uh, Ireland in 1670, <clears throat> just before the, the, the trial, which happens just on his return in 1670, um, he doesn't return there for 28 years. Um, and frankly, if you're if you're an English landowner in Ireland and you don't have someone on the ground collecting your rents for you, you're simply not going to get paid. Um, and so there's um, and then once he leaves Pennsylvania, he's in a he's in a legal dispute with Lord Baltimore, his southern neighbor over the boundary between their two colonies. Um, and they have to go back to London to argue it in front of the um, the Board of Trade. Um and he he envisions this as a relatively brief detour, and he said, "I'll I'll, I'll be right back." In so many words, <laughs> and he ends up being gone ends up being gone fifteen years. And so you you simply can't um, a you simply can't um, 
uh, expect that people are going to be volunteering you their pay when they, in many cases, are newly settler settling in a uh, in a new place. Um, uh, there's not a lot of currency going around in the colonies, and so there's a whole bunch of reasons why. But he he and this is really very quickly becomes a source of deep, deep, bitter um, uh, frustration at uh, the Pennsylvanians. Um, he pours out in, in correspondence to them uh, all the sums that he thinks he's owed, you know, that the number ranges widely, comes up with all different numbers. Um, uh, but, but it becomes a source of deep, deep frustration for him um, and really does poison the relationship with his fellow Quakers in in Pennsylvania. Uh, and frankly, he has uh, he has no. He, you know, when he comes back the second time, he brings a guy named James Logan with him, um, who who then re- remains his secretary for life. And Logan, one of Logan's jobs is to uh, you know uh, be Penn's agent in Pennsylvania. But that's not till later. So he really is kind of has very little recourse um, to make them do much of anything, whether it's paying him the money that uh, he is owed or um, uh, passing certain legislation and so on. So it's uh, it becomes very quickly a real um, a really fraught relationship. You've mentioned the uh, boundary dispute that he has with Lord Baltimore. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that and why it was that they had to go all the way back to England <laughs> to adjudicate it. Right. Um, well, what's what's kind of amusing about a lot of these things is that um, the maps that they were using in many cases were um, being viewed, uh, being drawn and being viewed in um, in London. <clears throat> um, uh, degrees of latitude and so on, often rulings being made by people who had never laid eyes on the place. Um, and so there was this you know, really, really politically charged uh dispute between him and Baltimore, if Baltimore, if, if the line was where Baltimore said it was, Penn stood to potentially lose Philadelphia. That would fall within Maryland somehow. Um, and, and, and so it was, it was really kind of a zero sum, uh, situation. One of them for one of them to win, the other would have to lose. Um, and so Penn said when he first came to America, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, letter he writes. And he says, I, I, I can see spending the rest of my life here. If I can get my family to come over, I said, I'm like to be an adopted American. Um, and yet two years later, um, the Board of Trade and and the Crown were the ones who really decided these kinds of questions. So once uh, Baltimore went first and said, I'm going to go back and, and argue my case in person, um, Penn then made a very you know uh, difficult, but I think probably you know, uh, unavoidable decision that he had to be there too. That also, it's also the case that Penn um, had good reason to think that he would emerge successful, not because he was skilled in map reading necessarily, but because his father had been a great friend of the king um, uh, and the current um, Duke of York, who was next in line for succession, uh, James, who later became King James II, had served with Sir William in the Navy. And so, it, it, as it turned out, Penn was victorious um, and did prevail in the case against Baltimore. Um, and one of the great what-if questions that I always sort of think about is, what if he had then immediately returned to Pennsylvania um, and not ended up being gone 15 years? It would likely have turned out rather differently. Um, and yet he, he's there at this enormously momentous point in uh, English history because he yeah. is in there in the, in the mid 1680s. Uh, Charles II dies. Uh, mm-hmm. his, his brother takes over the throne and uh, his brother, of course, has an agenda that is not only is he, you know, uh, is he friendly towards Penn, but he has an agenda that actually uh, meshes nicely with a lot of Penn's uh, ideas about toleration and, and, and belief. Exactly. And that's precisely the reason why he doesn't uh, go back to America. Because in, if you think about it, what is it that drove him into public life in the first place? It was the, it was the search for religious liberty for English dissenters. Um, and so uh, I think, and, and Penn also, I suspect, was like any of the rest of us, he has a certain vanity to him. The king says to him, uh, I have this vision for a society uh, that English society would embrace its religious dissenters. Penn and James are both 
alienated from the Church of England. James is a Catholic. Penn is a Quaker. They're both they're both converts, so they they have a certain sort of convert type zeal for their uh, faith. Um, and Penn um, quickly becomes what one scholar has called the intellectual architect uh, of James's uh, sort of campaign to repeal the laws that persecute uh, religious uh, dissenters. Um, and he becomes he becomes enormously influential. He walks the halls of power in ways that, that we have to admit make some Quakers uh, slightly um, uncomfortable. Um, and it seems as if uh, there's a real opening here. And and uh, of course, it all comes crashing down in, 16, <laughs> in 1688 um, when James uh, is able to flee to France and and ends up living a fairly comfortable life, although he tries to regain his throne unsuccessfully. Um, but Penn was not so lucky. And there's a there's a great line in in, in, in an article about Penn. Uh, the, the, the glorious revolution was not glorious for William Penn. Um, it was a it was a time where he was uh, the time after five year period after 1688. Um, he's under uh, suspicion. He's called in for questioning. He's imprisoned multiple times as a sort of a, a loyalist or a, a suspicions of treason. Um, uh, he loses control of the colony for um, a year and a half or so. Um, his wife, Guillermo, dies. And so there's a really uh, dark time for him. He insists to the end of his life um, that James's intentions uh, were good and he was seeking religious freedom. <clears throat> but um, again, he's he's under a shadow for, for, for quite some time. So... How is it that he's eventually able to emerge from the shadow and get back to America? And what's the condition of the colony like uh, when he arrives? Right. Well, he, he eventually gradually works his way back into royal uh, uh, favor by sort of continually, continually protesting his innocence. Um, you know, some time passes by. He has influential friends who kind of help ease the way back in. Um, he, he gets remarried. Um, he doesn't get back to... Pennsylvania. He goes to he goes to Ireland in the summer of 1698 for the first time in nearly three decades, and then um, late 1698 he finally returns to Pennsylvania. So he's been gone 15, 15. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, he re returns in, in late 1698. He's been gone vir virtually 15 years. Um, this the situation of the colony is um, they have, without his um, permission, changed the uh, constitution. Um, they have been governing themselves, in their own view, right, um, more or less uh, ably and adequately. Um, uh, he's no longer the kind of young, energetic, charismatic founder. Now he's sort of someone who's you know, sort of parachuting back in after such a long absence. Um, and he's also under strict orders from the Board of Trade, to uh, crack down on smuggling and reports of uh, smuggling and, and, and pirates being harbored, um, which deprives the crown of their of their taxes and duties on on trade. Um, and so one of his first acts is removing some very popular public officials from office. And so it's really uh, a, a complicated, um, tense couple of years um, where he's trying desperately to kind of right the ship from his own perspective. Um, but the but the colonists have been governing themselves for you know, more than a decade, and and they're not really eager to have him back on the. Many of them aren't really eager to have him back on the scene. So he is there in the colonies for uh, over two years, and and you you've expressed how he had this desire to to make that his life, and yet he leaves in 1701 and, and never returns. What is it that brings him back to England? And what is it that in effect keeps him in England for the rest of his life? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a bill introduced in parliament, which would um, consolidate all of the colonies under the direct rule of the crown. So as it stands, he's what we call a proprietor. And, and, and so Pennsylvania is in a sense, his property. Um, and he has certain, he has certain property rights just as any other piece of property. One of his, one of the rights written into the colonial charter is he gets to appoint uh, the governor. Now, when he's there uh, himself, he is the governor as well. And when he's off the scene, he appoints a deputy. Um, but there's a move and lots of other colonies are brought under uh, the direct rule of the crown. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a move afoot to sort of consolidate that. It happened earlier as well, but he was able to shield Pennsylvania. Uh, the, New, the, the Massachusetts charter is called in in the 
1880s. Um, but he's able to shield his colony, um, uh, and he thinks that if he could uh, get back there um, in himself and do his own sort of personal politicking and lobbying and networking, he can stop that. He's, cons- he's cons- as he looks at it, he has invested an enormous amount of money over the last uh, 20 years in this place. Um, and simply taking it away from him um, would be would be sort of a violation of his property. So that's the sort of the short term reason. <clears throat> the colonists understand that he is desperate to get back there and they ex- sort of extort from him in some ways um, a, a new governing document. Um, and uh, so once he gets back there, he is able he and you know other people as well. Um, the movement to centralize Pennsylvania and the other colonies um, doesn't go anywhere. But again, he's back to England. Um, he's got a growing young family. Um, uh, his wife uh, was willing to go to Pennsylvania. Hannah was willing to go uh, for the visit, um, but she's not particularly eager to uh, go back. Her parents are, are, are aging and they're in Bristol, Bristol, uh, England. Um, and so he uh, really does kind of, in some ways, I think, settle back into the most familiar, comfortable existence. He is English by birth. He's English by uh, being raised. Um, and with a few exceptions, he's been in, in England you know, all of his life. So, And then, of course, as we get uh, his financial condition, which is never great, is continuing to get worse and worse. Um, he has a habit of not signing or not reading papers carefully before he signs them. He has a habit of borrowing money from one person to pay back someone else. Um, and so uh, an accumulation of uh, gradually accumulating sort of physical ills. And so, um, yeah, he never, he never, after 1701, after leaving in 1701, um, never, um, never returns. It was that contrast that, that I thought was uh, one of the interesting, uh, and it's something that, that I, I, I thought that describing his imprisonment in 1708 made clear is that you have him as a, I mean, he's no stranger to prison. <laughs> Uh, and 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 you have him in the in the in the 1670s, you know, going to uh, jail for a few days here and a, and a few weeks there because of of you know issues of of conscience and practice. Mm-hmm. And at the end of his life, he he's he's returning back to uh, a, a, state, a, a conditions of confinement. But it, it's it, it's so telling about you know the the problems he faces by the end of his life that it's not because of his beliefs or his writings, but right. because of the you know the debts he's accumulated. In the over the course of having built this this enterprise, which you know endures in 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 some form down to the present day, right? It's a very complicated legal story. I tried to tell it as simply as possible in the book, um, but he had a, a an, an assistant, an agent by the name of Philip Ford, who who worked for him for decades, um, and and Ford kept all of his accounts and all of that, and. Um, Ford would present him with reckonings of his credits and debits, and he would just sort of sign it. Um, and then Ford died in 1702, I want to say, um, and Ford's widow sort of presented Penn with uh, these papers that he had apparently signed over Pennsylvania as collateral uh, <laughs> and money he had borrowed from from Ford. Now, no one else knew this. Um, so, so he tries desperately to keep this private, and he tries to make partial payments and gets away with this for a few years. But then finally, um, the widow, um, Bridget Ford and her son, um, you know, take Penn to court and, and um, they claim, you know, he claims that he's been swindled by them. And, and Ford was a fellow, they were all fellow Quakers. So this was, you know, sort of doubly um, difficult. Um, and eventually he, he goes to, uh, he goes into the fleet prison for eight months. Um, it's a humiliation, certainly. Um, uh, it was not so much hard time. I mean, he lived, a, he was able to stay in a room, um, slight, fairly comfortable, but it's, de- but it's deeply humiliating. Um, and he is absolutely vindictive, vindictively bitter towards the Ford, uh, family, um, considers himself to have been cheated. Um, and eventually is only able to get out by borrowing the money to pay back the Ford. So it's, it all sort of starts back over again. <laughs> Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Well, I, I've got a couple more pen things just sort of in the in the in, in the in the works. Just uh, the other day, um, published a book uh, of essays uh, called "The Worlds of William Penn" with Rutgers Press, which is an edited collection of uh, new sort of scholarship on Penn from a 
range of different disciplines, art history and literature and, and political theory and history and so on. Um, and I've got one last project that I'm, that I'm currently working on, which is a sort of an, a scholarly edition of Penn's political writings where it would involve tracking down all of his scriptural references and, and so on. It's, it's a bit tedious, but it's really quite fascinating to see all the ways in which he drew on this lifetime of uh, experience. Um, but I have to say too, that having done, yeah, two books on Penn in the last three years and having a couple more still in the in the sort of final stages. I think I'm about to take a break from, uh, <laughs> from, from big new projects. And uh, I got a few courses to teach and I'm in the process of moving to a position in the political science department at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond uh, from Rutgers. So I'll be having some new colleagues and some new um, uh, some new teaching responsibilities. And I'll, I'll take a little take a little breather and, and see what comes up next. It sounds like quite an adventure there. <laughs> well, uh, Andrew uh, Murphy, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. Yeah, you too.